Welcome to Supply Chain Now, the voice of global supply chain. Supply Chain Now focuses on the best in the business for our worldwide audience, the people, the technologies, the best practices, and today's critical issues, the challenges, and opportunities. Stay tuned to hear from those making global business happen right here on Supply Chain Now. Hey, good morning, Scott Luton, Greg White, and special guest host, Constantine Limbarakis with you here on Supply Chain Now. Welcome to today's live stream. Greg, how you doing? I'm doing quite well. Wonderful, wonderful. And Dino's playing tricks on us. Dino, how you doing? I'm good. All good here in Chicago. <laughs> well, great to have you with us. Greg, we're pretty excited. Before we welcome everybody, we're really excited to have Constantine start a uh, a guest host role here at Supply Chain Now. Greg, what do you think, if you had to describe to the audience uh, and <laughs> one aspect of his worldview or uh, his expertise, his perspective, what do you think they're, that uh, they can expect from, from Constantine here? Smarter. <laughs> you guys are wearing it on thick man that's pretty good we are. Uh, no i mean i think you know you know you you have made a career of researching and understanding the products the the practice right i mean you've actually worked for analyst groups before you do a lot of of publishing research mm. and and that sort of thing. So I just think, you know, I'd have to say more informed at the very least, but probably also smarter. Scott. <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and folks, you may hear us use one of his nicknames and, and, you know, nicknames are terms of endearment for sure. Uh, so Constantine, AKA we Dino should put out a poll, you know, so you don't get to decide what your nickname is. <laughs> That's right. right. <laughs> we went through that already when we talked before, but, or Dino, yeah. So I'll give you a chance, then, Constantine. Respond to what you know. Greg kind of spoke about uh, your journey and, and what you bring to the table. Your quick response before we, we welcome everybody else. Oh, yeah. Well, I appreciate that, Greg. I mean, you know, I think it's true. It's, it is a journey of how you're building your opinions and, and trying to understand the trends. And it's, you know, it's this combination of uh, experience with what you've learned in school and what you, how do you apply those things together with the changes in technology? And, you know, you have a, a, a worldview based on what you've seen and um, be able mm -hmm. to try to opine on something based on some educated guess of what you think is going on. Mm -hmm. That perspective. And constantly evolving, yes. right? I mean, I, I think that's important. That's one thing that, you know, I admire about people like you who are, are in the industry have been in the industry for a while and you know we limit our our confessions of uh tenure to no more than two decades um <laughs> why don't we get, we get a kick out of that yeah <laughs> which is laughable as i'm doing the math in my head <laughs> of mine there are a relatively short list of people who continue to question the status quo if you will of of the practice of the industry and those are the people who help continue to evolve the practice. We're going to talk about some people who are backsliding big time, by the way, on this episode. So you'll get to see the juxtaposition of people who don't evolve versus people who do. Yeah, absolutely. Can't wait for that. We're going to talk backsliding. We're going to talk about uh, drug shortages. We're going to talk mm. about Dino's recent uh, trip down to the Gartner Supply Chain Symposium, some key takeaways there. 
and more. So you're in the right place, everybody. We're going to say hello to folks. To, to, uh, I, I got to share this. So, Josh, good, great to see you. Supply Chain Emperor is a nickname uh, that Josh oh. suggests uh, for Constantine. I love that, Josh, mm. and hope you had a great weekend. Um, all right. So, folks, uh, just a level set with some of you may, that may be new uh, today, coming at you at 12 noon Eastern time every Monday. It's the Supply Chain Buzz, where we talk about a variety of news and developments today across global business. And hey, we want to hear from you as well. So, just like Josh did, throw your comments there in, in the chat. Uh, chat bar, the cheap seats, as we call them, and we're going to share them throughout uh, in addition to our expertise and analysis of what's going on. And hey, if you're listening to the podcast replay, which we drop on Fridays, typically of Monday's buzz, if you're listening to the podcast replay, hey, come check us out live uh, one Monday at 12 noon on LinkedIn or YouTube or any other social media channels of your choosing. We'd love to hear from you. Okay. So let's do this. We got. We want to share. You know, we're all about sharing resources here, Greg and Constantine. And Greg, uh, not too long ago, we held the analysis a live show of the U.S. Bank Freight Payment Index for Q1 2023. This is a free resource. It comes out every quarter, mainly focused on uh, shipping volume and spend. Folks, if you want to sign up for it, go to freight.usbank.com or check out the link in the chat. Greg, what's one thing folks can expect from this uh, quarterly resource? Surprises. Uh, some dramatic surprises and probably some uh, enlightenment as to where we are in in the market cycle right now. Yep. Take a look. It's worth a look, especially this one, but always every quarter. That's right. And we're going to make it easy. Thanks to our good friends at U.S. Bank for offering that uh, free resource. You sign up for it, hit your inbox every uh, quarter, and we've got the link to do so right there in the chat. A bank that's still in business. <laughs> New tagline. (laughs) And has the power to keep on going. That is right. Energizer. Okay. A little note from the weekend, uh, Dino and Greg. Before we get to do that, though, uh, let's say hello to a few folks. Of course, we mentioned Josh Goody, who's always with us here from Seattle. It's sunny and 72 degrees in Seattle at the moment. Uh, And Josh, we've got a new team member up in your neck of the woods. We're going to have to get y'all connected, don't we, Greg? Yeah, no doubt. Uh, Dino, you ever been to Seattle? You know, I have. I spoke, speaking of talking, I spoke at a conference uh, when I was in Seattle. I literally had flown from London the day before, stopped at home, and flew all the way to Seattle the next day. It was Wow. <laughs> but I, I saw the needle. That was the key. I saw the needle. The needle was there. <laughs> did you see the sun? That's the real <laughs> That I did not see. I did Much harder. No sun, needle. That's what I saw. <laughs> All right. Well, Josh, great to have you here. Uh, Obi, tuned in via LinkedIn. Great to see you here. Let us know where you're tuned in from. Our dear friend, Jose Montoya, doing really good things uh, in creating great content uh, over in uh, California, Southern California. Jose, great to see you here. Uh, Emanuela, great to see you via LinkedIn. Let us know where you're tuned in from. Gino, Gene Pledger from North Alabama. Great to see you here, Gino. Hope you had a wonderful Wonderful Mother's Day weekend. Hopefully, all of y'all did. Gene, the supply chain machine. Yeah. Oh man, that's a that's a great nickname there. And finally, Jerry, great to have you back with us once again. Uh, hailing from Smyrna, uh, in the Metro Atlanta area uh, via LinkedIn. Jerry, great to see you. Or Smyrna, or Smyrna. Smyrna. I've heard it said all three ways. Just for the world's knowledge, in Georgia, <laughs> it's Smyrna. Right. Oh man. All right. So. Dino and Greg, I want to share a little highlight I had over the weekend. I'm going to pop this graphic up here. Mm-hmm. So this movie named Air, uh, in a nutshell, it's all about how Air Jordans came about. And it's got an all-star cast. 
Uh, it tells a really, if, you know, if you're a kid of the eighties, uh, certainly like I am, um, you know, air Jordans, you know them well. I don't think I've ever owned a pair cause they were really, they were really expensive when they first came out and ever since, but this is such a wonderful story. And one tie in Greg, cause Greg and you, Dino, I don't think I've seen it yet, but, um, at least the story that the movie tells, and I still got to dive into the real story, right? Because you know Hollywood, you got Hollywood versions, and you got how it really happened, maybe. But artistic license, yes. Artistic license, yes. Um, but I loved how um, I think Dolores Jordan, I, w- I think was her name, uh, was Michael Jordan's mother, and man, she really she led the negotiations and uh, included the tidbit that uh, Michael Jordan gets. Um, uh, gets like a spiff on every pair of Air Jordans ever sold, and just how uh, um, how impactful and pivotal she was to help build the business version of the Michael Jordan we all know and love. What a great, great story, Greg. Uh, have you ever owned a pair of Air Jordans? Uh, and anything about the legend that they have become? Any, any comments there? I have. Um... So I played basketball in high school and we got air, I think, I don't know all the model numbers, but the second version, if those were air twos, okay, I think they were, I think you're right. Um, we got the air twos. You actually played basketball in those shoes back in the day, right, right now. <laughs> now you wouldn't dare try to scuff them up by right. actually playing a sport in them. Uh, uh, I remember that because we switched from Converse which still made leather tennis shoes. Right. I mean, really good tennis shoes back then, or basketball shoes, I should say. Yep. Um, we switched from Converse to Nike yep. that year. Yeah. Well, and and then I'll get your thoughts next. Michael Jordan, as the story plays out, he was a big Adidas fan, right? And and, and Nike was still trying to break their way into the basketball market, and they they had just a handful of superstars that would that were endorse their shoes. Just a great story. Dino, how about you? Ever had a pair of Air Jordans? Uh, no, I was more of a Vans kind of guy. <laughs> oh, Constantine Spicoli, that's what we should call you. <laughs> there we go. No, uh, I've never, but I obviously have a lot of friends. That- Mr. Hand. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Fast right? Times. Yep. That's right. Okay. Yep. Very good. Awesome. Made Vans, especially the checkerboard ones, famous. For sure. Really? Well, hey, folks, uh, if you're looking for a, a great movie, and man, it's tough to find good movies these days, but y'all check out Air. You can get it on, I think, Amazon, and hope let us know what you think. Um, all right, so let's get into the first story here today, Greg and Dino. Uh, we're talking about drug shortages, right? So I want to start with, um, you know, the White House has been giving this area a lot more attention lately, as uh, we've seen, unfortunately, drug shortages, including some common antibiotics, hit a five-year high in 2022. Almost 300 total uh, drug shortages were reported by the end of the year. As we all know, pharma production has been shifting for decades. There's a ton of moving pieces, so I'm, I, you know, it's going to be tough to give the entire industry and all the shifts ju- uh, uh, its due in two minutes' time. But Greg and Dina, I want to share a couple of important background pieces, and then I'll get y'all's take on what we're seeing uh, out in the industry and how the White House is putting together super secret. Uh, task forces to do something about it. So uh, what you need to know is APIs or active pharmaceutical ingredients is a critical ingredient in drugs, whether they're generic or otherwise. 
Now, as of August 2019, it's tough to get updated information. Uh, there's so much, uh, there's a lack of clarity oftentimes uh, across the international uh, drug industry. But according to the FDA, as of August 20, 2019, only 28% of the manufacturing facilities making these APIs to, to supply the U.S. market were in the U.S. Of the remaining 72% uh, in 2019, 13% were in China, China and India have both, uh, in fact, grown their pharmaceutical industries tremendously. Now, of course, on one hand, that's helped keep some prices down. But since regulation and safety inspections aren't as rigorous as they are here in the States, that's also introduced more safety issues. One last note here, as, as you see the title up at the top, as the article points out, since the beginning of 2023, the Biden administration has formed a task force that is debating different approaches to address the shortages. Now, Greg, your thoughts as it relates to what we're seeing out there uh, with, with these drug shortages or what the federal government may or may not be able to do about it? Well, let's start by reinforcing the fact that we're talking almost exclusively when we talk about drug shortages of generics, which means those are at least 25-year-old drugs that have come off of their patent, right? They're usually widely um, applicable drugs, things like omeprazole, which used to be Nexium and now is all sorts of generics and private labeled and now even has been declassified all the way down to an over the OTC, mm. right, over the counter drug. So that's an industry that has a lot of stability in demand because the demand grows by prescription, mm. right? And, and it grows as people convert from branded you know, once the incentives go off, doctors cease to prescribe the branded mm -hmm. uh, product and, and begin to prescribe the generics. Mm. That's an important thing to address. And the other is 13%, only 13% of the 72% that isn't produced in the States is produced by China and India. Yep. So it doesn't seem like in this case, and it's nice to be able to say this, that those two marketplaces are the bottlenecks here. So I wonder what it is. The U.S. sources and, and produces a far larger chunk of the product than, than China and India do. So where does the problem really lie is one question we have to discover. What can we practically do about it? And where is the rest of that production? I didn't see it in the article. I missed it if it was mm -hmm. in there. Yep. But I didn't see where the rest of that production occurs. And I think we also have to acknowledge that this is our own damn fault <laughs> because we had branded patented and generics all produced in the states as well. The place that they were produced wouldn't call themselves part of the states, Puerto right. Rico, but in a United States territory. And we disincentivized the pharmaceutical manufacturers, so they moved overseas. Yeah. So to me, the answer seems fairly simple, which is bring the incentives back, right? Figure out a way to make those affordable. One other assertion I had to chuckle at was the FDA calling themselves underfunded mm. to approach this problem. So, <laughs> yes, for sure. All right. So, Dino, what about you? What's your take? What we're seeing? Well, I, it is kind of this topic comes close to to my best because uh, I have a contact, can't name names, but someone close to me that, that was in the pharmaceutical industry for over 25 years uh, as a chemist, organic synthesis chemist. And uh, he was taught when I asked him about this question, he is like, when you're dealing with the API, he says oftentimes, and you nailed it on the head, Greg, is with the not with the generics, or at least with non-generics, I think is what he said. 
he said that to keep them down the synthesis the synthesize the chemistry right so they have this api the component and then they try to synthesize that through chemistry to figure out an alternative way from the natural ingredient right and he says that the late stage part of it usually is done in the united states because that's where the ip comes in but most of that other work is done overseas in china and india because of cost that was straight yeah, up right. this point and what he's noticing now is that um, they're starting to also look at alternative locations. Um, I think there was some kind of tariff that was put in 2021. There was a good article in the uh, Harvard Business Review about this that said India imposed an export ban on medicines during the pandemic. And mm-hmm. so that created a lot of tension. And he told me also that um, one of the places that they're starting to look at are places like Eastern Europe. So because of that cost factor with the arbitrage and an educated labor force, mm-hmm. you're looking at places like that, which you wouldn't have thought of in the past, but that might be uh, a good way for an alternative for the manufacturer where we don't yep. have this challenge and bringing it home. Yeah, Ireland, uh, Greg, going back, it's a good stuff there. You know, uh, Ireland, uh, Greg, as you were talking about, you know, where some all these things manufactured, that was a surprising list uh, up near the top uh, of the... Um, of the drugs we get from the European Union. Uh, I think a couple of, as I was diving in deeper and trying to understand, cause man, there's so much going on here when we talk about the pharmaceutical industry, but a couple of things, uh, I was reading a New York Times article about how uh, domestic penicillin has really changed dramatically, especially since the eighties, when the Chinese government invested heavily in uh, penicillin fermenters. And it, 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 it changed the whole market globally for penicillin producers and in their efforts to kind of corner that critical uh, drug, right? And then secondly, what I was reading from the World Health Organization, right, WHO, there's a lot of concern in China about how much they use antibiotics in mass and how that is developing a, I uh, forgot the phrase they use, and clearly I did not do organic chemistry, but it's it's creating uh, resistance in the bodies right. to them, and and so the the WHO is really trying to drive awareness and action on how we can address that. So lots of moving pieces. But Greg, your response to what Dina was sharing uh, with his insider information. Well, uh, let me address a couple things. One, Ireland was large was more about tax savings and profit shielding than ah. than anything else, which is anything to do with intellectual property in Ireland. Um, many companies, including tech companies, did that used to do this thing. They've now retooled it. It was called a double Irish Dutch sandwich where you pass intellectual property between a bunch of companies in Ireland and the Netherlands and Bermuda to shield yourself from taxes in either the UK or the United States. I think anywhere, anywhere we can do this work besides China because it's China and because of India, mm. outside of India, because they have some significant challenges with safety there. I mean, the workforce isn't quite there and the infrastructure isn't quite there to assure, you know, the type of safety that we require in the States is important. The other thing that is important to acknowledge here is this is a shifty industry, generics. It's very, I mean, I've worked with pharmaceutical distributors and manufacturers and this generic business is very shady. Mm. So there's not a lot of transparency. A lot of these companies, you know, don't want to share. So that's going to be a, a hindrance. Now, I think the big companies like Teva, um, which is an enormous company, you know, or enormous generic, I think they will or 
probably will be forced to provide some transparency, which is is fair to say is whatever they can provide is likely universal yeah. throughout the industry. So that's going to be a critical aspect of resolving this. Um, but, there, you know, there's just a lot that's unknown, frankly, even to the distributors and, of course, to the medical practitioners about the industry. And that's going to be a real struggle. Yeah. You're almost going to have to impose penalties for not revealing information in order to to solve this problem. Mm, mm. Well, good stuff there, Greg and Dina. We'll have to get your uh, your source uh, to give us more of what's going on behind the scenes. Because as to Greg's point, man, it is it, it's it's like uh, you know peeling an onion. Man, you pull one layer, you got another layer, another layer, another layer. Uh, so, um, your last thought here, Dina, on these this topic of drug shortages before we move on to another bright and cheery topic of supply chain cyber attacks. Your last thought, Dino. Yeah, I, I think I think part of the way to solve the problem too is I was just reading something that was posted on the FDA and they're talking about this concept of advanced manufacturing and the, the concept of it being technologies that will improve the quality, address mm. the shortages, the speed to market, maybe using even AI to help put that together and we'll talk a little bit about AI later on. But again, some of these advanced techniques that will help the science get better and help develop things quicker and not rely uh, because of that cost factor that we talked right. about before, which is the whole reason why we went to India and China in the first place. That could help yep. transform the way we manufacture drugs in this country. So yep. innovation, I guess, is the way. How do we change it? Innovation. Well said. All right, a couple of quick comments here. James uh, references the 2023 annual threat assessment uh, about China controlling 40% of our uh, API to produce medical drugs. James, uh, that's a good piece. And if you got a link, we'd love to see it. It, it kind of depends on uh, on how you categorize. You know, there's a lot of bad numbers and bad data that folks are using for different reasons. But hmm. shoot us up, shoot us that link. I'd love to dive into that. Uh, Josh says Lithuania has a few labs that some big companies use. He didn't see any reports of Turkey after the last earthquake. Uh, Jerry's talking about, hey, is Mexico or South America an option for low-cost production? I think the last thing we want to do is <laughs> introduce more motivation to fool around with mm. drugs in South America or Mexico. Right. Let's do this. Greg and, and, and Dino, let's shift gears over to supply chain cyber attacks. So this isn't going to surprise a lot of folks. I want to pull out one nugget. This is a great read. Check it out. But from drug shortages, right and cherry topic to continued massive increase of cybersecurity issues across global supply chain. Great read here from Forbes uh, and a couple nuggets here. So according to some reports, documented supply chain cyber attacks were up over 600% in 2022. Of course, that rise has continued moving into 2023. Here we are almost halfway through the years. Unbelievable. Now, some experts point to a change in approach by many bad actors and hackers as an increase in corporate security, which is good news, has the bad guys targeting software vendors and other system providers more often. And finally, as this article points out, though, a key part of any cyber risk strategy is to put emphasis and resources into building a comprehensive incident response program which will help contain uh, the cyber attacks and minimize damage. Because it's not a question of when you get attacked. It's um, it's how bad it is. Uh, well, one thought, mm -hmm. uh, Greg. Greg, your thoughts here, what, what we're seeing in this continued environment of uh, supply chain cyber risk. This is part of the downside of the awareness that has been shed on supply chain since the great toilet paper shortage of 2020. 
right? So um, now these hackers know, oh, there might be a weak spot, right? So in 2013, right, they attacked the whatever the HVAC folks right. working on target stores. Mm-hmm. Now they're now they go, oh, well, they have all these supply chain vendors and technology providers, right? In all honesty, a lot of these fledgling technology providers, they do play pretty fast and loose with cybersecurity. And now, fortunately, a lot of companies have built regulatory compliance methodologies that force these companies to be, you know, to get SOC whatever and ISO this and all that other that, you know, so that it is safer. Anyway, encrypting files, you know, all of that kind of thing, encryption points on both ends, et cetera. So I think that will come around. But if you're working with a relatively fledgling startup, there's a lot of risk there. Mm. So part of the benefit, though, is those are harder to find. I mean, it's harder for a hacker to to find them unless they target a company that is kind of a classic early adopter who may have more exposure there. Mm. But it is to your point, Scott, it's not whether you've been hacked in many cases, it's when they'll activate it. It's not even whether you will be attacked. Many, many companies have had some sort of something planted in there. And now there's a social engineering process underway. And then they'll determine when they've got access to enough information and or capital to execute. Yeah. Well said, yeah. Greg. Uh, yeah. Constantine, give us more good news. <laughs> well, good or bad, I guess. The point is, it's connecting the dots on that. I think the whole thing about the offshoring and outsourcing of the, the drug development is a classic case in point here of how, mm-hmm. what kind of integrity you know, our, our, our high, uh, import, you know, our most strategic industries are like pharmaceutical, like aerospace and defense, where they can't have these third parties, uh, that they're working with that in some cases might be a secondary, a tertiary supplier. Right. And that's part of the problem here is, is you're dealing with multiple tiers of these supply chains and increasing complexity. And that's what adds to this problem, to Greg's point. I mean, that's the classic one with the HVAC, but maybe that was a tier one. At what point, if how, how deep do you go into the supply chain right. where there's a hack that's going on that we don't even know about? And I think there's a, a real good statistic here. It was, I think, from IBM. Um, the average cost of a data breach in 2022 was $4.35 million. And mm. they say that this year, the figure is expected to grow to $5 million. So wow. just because of the increased digitization. So as we go more digital, we increase our exposure and that mm-hmm. creates these problems that unanticipated consequences of advancing innovation, right? And so I think the key here is, is the number of suppliers that you keep adding. And the other thing we're seeing are the elements of how IT vendor risk, supply chain risk, and even the ESG reputation risk now here, you're seeing this convergence of this around cyber. Right, and we could talk about this on the Gartner on the Gartner as, aspect, but there's some interesting aspects here of why this is so critical and how it needs mm. to be figured out. A lot to dive into, and yeah, I can't wait to get your key takeaways from the Gartner event. Um, but uh, Greg, excellent point. Uh, you and Dina appreciate the you know supply chain global security. The curveballs keep coming, and uh, Greg, I, I think as you started in to say in your response, you know. Technology is a double, double-edged sword, right? The good actors have the technology innovations and the breakthroughs, and unfortunately, the bad actors do too. Well, in that awareness, right, we've been begging in supply chain for 
to be recognized. Well, we've been recognized <laughs> and there's a lot that comes along with it. That's right? right. Additional accountability and additional targeting. So we have to really step up and embrace good, better, much better business practice to, yes. to protect the companies that we are serving. Cyber hygiene. We got to keep making. Oh, I like that. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. You like that too, Dina, huh? I do. A <laughs> quick little blurb here. I want to, you know, we're all about providing resources as we help our listeners and their organizations, you know, fight through this environment we're in and make gains. So, hey, check us out on June 20th, 12 noon Eastern time. Now, this is a webinar with our friends at uh, Optilogic and CH uh, Robinson. We're going to be talking about five reasons network design is essential to supply chain resiliency or if you'd rather, uh, supply chain anti-fragility, which is one of our terms we like around here. Now, you guys sign up for this session. Uh, the link will be in the chat, and we'd welcome you all to join us for what should be uh, a great conversation. All right. So, Greg and Constantine, before we get into, uh, we got one more fun article on the apparel industry that I can't wait. I can't wait to get Greg, Greg's uh, take on. But, hey, Dino, you just got back from Orlando, Florida. I bet mm -hmm. sunny and already early, warm uh, Orlando, mm -hmm. Florida. Mm -hmm. You're down there, attended the Gartner Supply Chain Symposium we referenced on the front end, uh, out amongst the people, the movers and shakers, absorbing it all. And then, Greg, as he shared, I think he shared this in the green room prior uh, on the pre-show. After the fact, he goes and downloads every single presentation <laughs> that was available and distills it all down into this pure golden nuggets of takeaways that he's going to be sharing with us. Greg, did I get that right? Did I get that right? I think so. Okay. That, that's what he's telling us. <laughs> and how will we ever know? Because I would never <laughs> attempt such a thing. <laughs> right. That is right. So, Dino, I'd love yeah. to get, I think we've got three of your key takeaways from all the goodness down there at Gardner Supply Chain Symposium. Let's start with number one. All right. So, you know, I'll, I would say just having attended before I jump into that, just really quick. Sure. It was I think they say they reached a record post COVID, just the number of people that were there. So it was absolutely um, crazy in hearing the amount of people and all the conversations. But I think if I had to boil it down into three nuggets, the first yeah. one. So you guys remember the Bullwinkle cartoon? Rocky and Bullwinkle? Right. And you had yeah, the same yeah. character, the Savoir Fair is everywhere. Remember that guy? Oh, yeah. Was that on Rocky and Bullwinkle? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I think so. I'm pretty sure it was. Love that character. Well, there. so I'm going to say AI is everywhere. Mm. That was it. Everyone was talking about machine learning, natural language processing, and of course, the explosion of what we call generative AI, aka ChatGPT. There was all these conversations around how we're doing this and it's just something you couldn't get away from and from every level at every level of from the front end of supply chain you know the analytics the sourcing the automated sourcing to intelligence behind where you can distribute more easily to the supply chain risks and in, in anticipating the disruption so that was one of the key hmm. things that was just pervasive i want to dive in really quick yes uh dino so that we got, the first one is ai is everywhere yes. so greg I'd love for you to weigh in because I love when you talk about, and uh, Dino, I bet you could see it, real AI in some 
presentations and conversations. And then like, it's the thing to say in others, mm-hmm. uh, in other conversations, Greg, anything you want to weigh in on, on the real artificial intelligence that you like talking about? Yeah. So it, it's less and less of somebody faking AI. The, most of those companies stop getting funding, thankfully. <laughs> um, but there's also a much greater predominance of people using AI platforms and not developing their own science mm. and those sorts of things, but really training like a an Azure or an AWS or a Google AI platform for a particular problem, which is great. It's just not very versatile. There are still companies out there, and when investing, right, we differentiate dramatically between these companies. Mm. There are still companies out there with data scientists who are building their own AI generative models and their own generative techniques. And it, it's a fine line, but there's a real difference there. They are essentially some companies building their own platform instead of just training someone else's models, right? It's like they're creating their own kids to teach instead of, mm-hmm. instead of training someone else's kids to do it. That's a very distinct difference in the industry because that company that has their own really unique methodology, even of using a, a well-established practice like generative AI, like you talked about, Dino, if they have their own platform rather than using someone else's platform, obviously that has much greater value and there's a lot more ease in building a moat around that. Mm. So that will be conflated over the next few years, this notion of whether companies are actually building something or if they're just training someone else's model. Mm. As this becomes the next go-go thing that everybody piles onto like they did, control towers and visibility in, you know, in logistics, people will at first go, oh, AI, that's really cool. Invest, 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 right? Love, buy, whatever. Uh, and then they'll realize that some of that stuff is less robust and less agile mm. and effective than others. Mm. Good stuff there, Greg. Uh, all right. So going back to the supply chain emperor, uh, Constantine, Greg <laughs> yeah, said moat. I had to, I had to bring that one back out. Uh, so as, as duly named by our friends, uh, Josh, sorry, Josh, our friend in Seattle. All right. So Constantine, the first one is AI is everywhere. AI is everywhere. Um, Number two. And the, to connect to the dots to what Greg was talking about of what they were using, whether they're using somebody else's library or they're using their own developed IP. I think that's a really fantastic point. Yeah. But in order for you to make sense out of it and make sure that AI works, it's all about the data and the data analytics. And then you Mm -hmm. say, it's all about the data, stupid, because that's what you need. You need Mm -hmm. that information for these algorithms to make sense. And I think one of the classic challenges that I've encountered is you go to every booth and you see all these providers there. You see the large ones, you've got the IBMs, you have the Coopas, you had the large providers there. And then you've got the smaller booths. And it's the classic challenge of a person in supply chain, whether they're on the procurement side or the logistics or the, on the distribution side, or they're, in, they're involved in sustainability somehow with fleet, whatever that problem is they're trying to solve, there's this kaleidoscope of solutions that's out there that you have to make sense. Mm-hmm. And I don't envy the practitioners that say, you got this much budget, you got to go here, and you've got to figure out with what you've got. Because in the end, everybody's footprint in this technologies that they're using is going to be a little different. And so how do you tune that to come up with the proper solution? So the takeaway there is that how do you leverage that data effectively and what's the means you're going to do it? 
Are you going to use a best of breed solution to bring that all in? Or are you going to use a platform to do that and try to make sense out of it that way or use some combination of both? And I'm sure, Greg, you've got some insights here from the investor perspective, but that that's always going to be the challenge and the rate at pace of that innovation of how you're going to use that data and then make sense out of it. Yeah, there's a couple things that I see. One is, do you need AI for that problem? I think a lot of people are leaping to AI. For instance, people are using AI for forecasting, but mostly what they're doing is they're using an AI technique to do best fit forecasting, which was done using statistical techniques up to that point. Mm -hmm. To me, the problem is not selecting the best technique. To me, the problem in forecasting is forecasting the wrong thing, Mm -hmm. because most of what we forecast, for instance, in supply chain, is really postcasting. It's looking at what happened before and going, some variation of that will likely happen next, right? So we're going to say to people, those 10,000 people that bought this thing last year, maybe you know them, and they're going to influence you to buy it this year. But that's not, that hardly ever happens, mm. right? So I think we have to acknowledge that there are definitely some advancements that we can make in supply chain that don't require AI, or that AI should be more effectively applied to, rather than some of these things where I think of this whole AI best fit forecasting thing as kind of a gimmick like Mm. chat GPT, a party trick, right? Mm. There are much more valuable things to apply artificial intelligence to than those tasks. If I add to that, uh, Greg, I'll I'll spend time this morning. I'm going to be in Chicago doing a fireside chat with a supply chain executive and technologist that is leading thousands and thousands of team members of a well-known retailer to get better and better. And as we were talking about some of the themes and some of their experiences, one of the things he spoke to, Greg, is exactly what you're talking about. He's like, I want to slow folks down from jumping on to the latest and greatest technologies. And let's talk about a what is a quantifiable business challenge we're trying to solve and start there and then figure out what the approach is. And so anyway, if you have folks, if you're in Chicago at, at Reuters Supply Chain USA, uh, we'll be up there Thursday and hopefully you can uh, take in some of the great sessions that we're part of. And, and Dino, looking forward to breaking bread with you in person. All right, so I lost count here. Uh, is all that part of one? Okay, we're on, we're on number two. Okay, go right ahead. Now we're on three, right? We connect. Now we're on three. <laughs> it, uh, it's all about the data. So reiterate one and two for yeah. us. And when I say us, I mean mostly me. That's okay. <laughs> we combine the one. And, it's the like technologies you bring together and how is AI fitting. The third is a theme that I know you guys have both talked about, di- digital transformation. I remember talking about this topic when I was back at Hackett, you know, several years ago. And this is something that's ongoing, right? And the aspect that I wanted to get at here was that it's the digital transformation, continuing to invest and using it within the context of funding sustainability. So this technology going towards AI and data analytics, really focusing on boosting efficiency and profitability, which has always been there, but then also improving sustainability. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the aspect of sustainability, which is really interesting, is it's not just what we think of traditional sustainability of um, you know, uh, where we, we want to make sure that it's viable in the environment and viable with in the ESG concept. Because I, buy, by the way, did not hear much about the term ESG when I was there. Mm. It's much more also about viability, a better way, but also making sure that you have product and that you are sustainable in the, in the sense of having that and making sure you can sustain your production and doing it within mm. those things. So it's a, the other usage of that term. We're going to almost have to 
create another term for that because sustainability has basically been hijacked by ESG. Correct. So whatever business sustainability is, continuity, right, maintainability, feasibility, whatever it is what you're talking about, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you're right. And so that is important to become sustainable into the future. So it's that kind of bilateral usage of the term. But, you know, you look at some of the stats out there about the investment. I think it says the U.S. and the EU, according to Forbes, says that they're currently spending $1.4 trillion on environmental sustainability and climate adaptation. So this is specifically to that part of it. And there's also $17.5 billion in VC funding for green tech. So I don't even want to validate that, but you saw a lot of that there. And that was very interesting when you're walking through and hearing those, those aspects of what providers are popping up because of those opportunities. Mm. Uh, Greg, any additional thoughts there as we, as we wrap on that third one? Yeah, well, I think, uh, I think an important notion is that, uh, you know, due to politics and whatever other manipulation by the press and the politicians, there is this notion that ESG is costly to companies. And if we think about what most people think about when they're discussing ESG, it's mostly emissions, right? E means environmental, but it, it but really the E stands for emissions mm. these days. And if you're reducing emissions, you're also reducing cost. So I, w- I will contend until the day that I die that those are not mutually exclusive goals and that it's okay to, and it makes sense to target both of those things. The efficiencies that Constantine, you were talking about that continue to remain in the forefront. And I think as the impact of the COVID restrictions wear off in terms of their impacts on supply chain, we'll start to backslide back to being a cost-based industry rather than a risk-balancing industry, which I've advocated for a long time. But I think you can accommodate all of those masters. You can assure good quality and reliability and speed and ethics which is what I call the ESG aspect of it, and cost. And again, you don't have to be a slave to the or. You can have the freedom of the and and attack all of those things at once. Now, attacking all those things at once is very complex, which goes back to point two, which is why AI, for the vast combinatorial analytics scenarios that we face in supply chain, becomes a really valuable uh, technique in terms of solving that problem. Mm. Yep. The freedom of the and, the freedom of the and versus the tyranny of the or. Uh, and also, uh, as Dino said in number two, quote, it's all about the data, stupid. Uh, I love that. Right. Um, <laughs> all right. I got to get caught up here on a couple comments. We got some some dear friends that have rejoined us. Uh, first off, hey, Jacob, I appreciate you joining us. Uh, hope to see you on that webinar coming up soon. Ever ready to attend this to unlock our blinding chains in Africa as well. Uh, Jacob. Appreciate you being here. And then Mark, Mark Gillum. Greg, you remember Mark Gillum? Yep. Uh, the rebate evangelist uh, created uh, quite a stir here with uh, a perspective that resonated with lots members, a lot of members of our audience. Now, Mark says, is there a risk we lose skills and become too dependent on others by trusting the AI black box? So any quick thoughts there, Greg or Dino, on Mark's question? I think AI is probably the best thing to capture the skills that we're already losing anyway. Baby boomers are fleeing the workforce 10,000 a day. And as I feel like I repeat too frequently, you know, I know we have a different audience for every show, right? Right. 3.1 million extra baby boomers retired during 2021. 
And that is largely tribal knowledge, right? That is not documented knowledge. So I think the only saving grace for companies is to capture that knowledge, impart that knowledge into AI mechanisms and utilize and adapt that knowledge to be used for the under-trained, under-educated in this practice, I mean, incoming workforce, right? And use that as valuable information to both inform and augment their performance in the workplace. Mm. Do you know anything to add there? I would just say real quick, I always think you got to leverage AI in the context of what is it meant to do. It's meant to mm. take simple tasks that are easily be easily replicable and changeable and take the stuff that's unique to the human form that we got to keep investing in. And that's where we need to go. And I think this fashion industry conversation we're going to bring up is part and parcel why it's been very difficult to use AI in retail. Ah, that's a great segue. Man, <laughs> Constantine, you're a natural. So with that, and I know we can't get everybody's comments. Jerry's got a great question here. I'd love to get y'all's take uh, there, all of y'all in the cheap seats to Jerry uh, Levy's question there. Uh, and Joey, hey, thanks for the feedback. I appreciate that. Great to have you here uh, via LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's get into the the fourth and final topic here today. Look at this picture. So folks, some of y'all may be listening to us. Uh, I've got a big old fax machine <laughs> pulled up as we dive into this last topic here. So uh, it's all about the apparel industry powered. And y'all got to check out this read from our friends at Supply Chain Dive, which I'll just read at the top. Apparel suppliers out of vogue as they resist tech investments. That's the uh, title of this piece. So did you know, Greg and Dino, the state of California once boasted some 9,000 apparel factories. Now that number is down to about 2,000, according to this article. So to set the tone here, I mentioned the fax machine. This article starts off by talking about a fabric company that requests, maybe not mandates, but it requests orders are sent in by fax machine. Evidently, uh, the apparel industry has been slow to embrace technology due to a variety of reasons. Of course, costs, but every industry and every sector has that, right? And there are some industry nuances in apparel, such as apparel development. And I'm no expert here, but apparel development evidently has traditionally been a very manual process to come up with you know, new clothes and whatnot. But my question to both of y'all, Greg and Dino, is this one. Can every industry, every sector uh, offer all sorts of excuses for not embracing technology? Greg, let's start with you. They can, just not as artistically <laughs> and convincingly as the apparel industry. Um, uh, I mean, you know, it, it is art. There is art in, in designing clothes, for instance, right? And it is typically done, if not on paper, on some other medium wherein, you know, you, you draw it, you mark it up, you scratch it out, you draw something else. <laughs> but it, is there an excuse for that? I mean, I mean, I didn't even know fax machines still existed except at banks, American <laughs> banks, um, which is about the only place they do still exist. But I'm stunned, frankly, by this because there are so many mediums. Remarkable. Has anyone ever heard of a remarkable? It's a notepad that's just like writing on paper. You can draw, do art on it, all sorts of things. There are electronic, you know, if you if you have to do it standing up, there are entire boards where you can draw in similar fashion. I mean, if that's the reason that we're holding back, I can't validate that mm. as, as a sound reason. But I have a feeling it's not just that. It's just that. I mean, we all, sorry, I'm sorry. I'm, I really struggle with this particular aspect of it. We have offloaded 
the work from hardworking, legitimate businesses to sweatshops in third world shitholes mm. around the world where people are basically driven into slave labor. And of course, mm. people who do that kind of business aren't going to invest in technology because as we talked about earlier, technology opens you up to observation and transparency. So there's a lot of intent in the industry because of that. Yeah. So I think we, you know, we have to acknowledge that. And Constantine, to your earlier point on, you know, on several fronts, we have to balance the cost, the efficiency, and the fairness of business in in these transactions and discussions and processes. And um, and I will argue till the day is done that even design is part of the supply chain because it's it is the butterfly wing flap that starts everything else in motion for the supply chain. Mm. Mm. All right. So Dino, I'd love to get your take here mm. on uh, whether the did I say hold out out loud? What's I did. Didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> uh, a couple of things. Keeping it real. Go ahead, Dino. A couple of things. One, when I saw the fax machine, I was I was still shocked. I was like, yeah, I'm like, I don't, I, I don't, I don't even know. Like, I just, I just can't comprehend. Right. Second, I was really surprised in just doing some research on the fact that there still is manufacturing in the LA area, this concentration. And I'm wondering yeah. on this. That many, 2000 is a lot still, isn't it? It's still a lot, right? And you're wondering, is there a factor there? Is there a whole other question around immigration there? And that kind of bleed, that's a whole other show, right? And so that's a dynamic there that I think needs to be considered in terms of what their reticence is to move. But then there was a law that was passed that basically noted that uh, in California recently that stated that um, here it was passed in January 22. It said it's illegal for garment workers to be paid piece rates. So they can't be paid based on the pieces that they do, but they now have to be paid hourly. So even with all that reporting and compliance going on in California. They're always cutting the edge with regulations, as we know. Mm. That even there then, what is that is that preventing is that increased cost preventing them from investing in the technology because of that? I, I don't know. We'd have to talk. And I think the third piece that I'd like to bring up is from a manufacturing standpoint, my understanding is part of the reason why it's so difficult is that there's a malleability when it comes to the design. So if you're dealing with like rigid structures like steel and plastic, 3D printing, that's easy to replicate and manufacture and hard code and replicate. But when you're dealing with the clothing and the layering and it's that fabric, I, I guess the machines aren't as sensitive to that. I don't know. Maybe there's an aspect there that makes fashion different. But that's my understanding of why maybe they have been more reticent to adopt more automation as part of this process because things have to be fixed and stitched differently and sewn differently. So it takes that human, I guess, cognitive ability to understand that it's wrong. Mm. And at what point can that change? So maybe those are my three yep. takeaways from reading this article. Hey, Greg, before you respond, I got to share Joey's comment here. Uh, Joey says, I hate to age myself, but fax machines were a breaking age. Uh, Technical age development about halfway through my 40-year career. Joey, thanks for sharing. Uh, all right, so Greg, I know you wanted to respond maybe to what the three things that Dino just laid out there. Well, first of all, Dino, that's very diplomatic. And um, <laughs> and I appreciate your presumption of noble intent. But how costly is it to replace a fax machine with the phone on your camera 
and an email, for instance. Mm. I mean, that's not that much more sophisticated, but it's not a fax machine. It's digital. It can be made manipulable, all of those sorts of things. I, I can't help but feel there is something else at play here. Mm. Now, all, all of your points around the types of fabrics and that sort of thing are legitimate, but that's not really what you communicate, for instance, over a fax machine or with spreadsheets, right? And to your point earlier, spreadsheets are not digital transformation, <laughs> right? Spreadsheets are digital manual processes mm. is all they are. Mm. I, I'd say digital might even be stretching it because there's not, you know, there's all all kinds of missing elements to using a spreadsheet. But I am stunned, honestly. I am absolutely baffled. I can't find a single good reason why these suppliers are holding back unless there is some intent to obfuscate mm. there or at least remain semi-anonymous, mm. right? They're off the grid. Mm -hmm. So, All right, Greg and Dino, we've had a wide-ranging episode of the Supply Chain Buzz here today. Gloria Moore. Thanks for being with us. Uh, hey, uh, she says, another great discussion. Too bad I have to catch a meeting. Have a good day, everybody. Don't be late. And thanks, Gloramon. That's right. Life and work continues. You know, Greg and Dino, uh, I'd love to get, first off, uh, Dino, let's make sure folks, they're going to be able to catch you here. we got some upcoming uh, shows together, some collaborations and whatnot. Let's make sure folks know how to connect with you um, after today's show. I'm assuming is LinkedIn a great place? Yeah, LinkedIn is always great. Fantastic way to reach out to me. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I really appreciate all that you brought here today. Greg, what's your final? Before uh, I want to call something out from our webinar, great webinar we had, which is now on demand. So, Amanda and Catherine, yeah. thanks for all you do. If we can have that Verison webinar link at the ready so we can drop that in the chat in just a minute, I would really appreciate it. Greg, great chat here with Dino here today. What's one of your favorite things? One of the things that whether he said it or someone in the cheap seat said it, or maybe something you said you want to spike the football on that folks got to pay attention to and take from this conversation. Your final thought. Uh, just that you said it, Dino. Just that you are here <laughs> to say it. I mean, I I, I think I really like how this kind of rounds us out, right? And by the way, you were doing the research right there on the show, weren't you? That's when you were kind of looking that way. You were actually doing a little research. I like that. <laughs> I am and I say? You never stop researching. And I think that, aspect of this really i think that will help provide additional insights to to our audience here plus i just love how informed you are it, it's really rare to have someone who is so ingrained in the practice who already calls the practitioners practitioners love that and has the kind of knowledge that you can share brilliant takeaways here so sorry to you know like <laughs> drown you in praise but I really, I really love the third perspective here, and I think it gives us a, an additional dimension. I'd be curious to hear what our viewers think. But yeah, I think there's a lot going on in the industry. We didn't talk about a lot of great things here. Right. But I think when you talk about these topics like we did today, we try to offer, here's why it is the way it is, and here's what needs to change. So even when we're talking about something that two or three downers like we had today, we're always trying to explore how to change this. We're not just reporting news here, right? right? This, is, this is an opinion and an education show. And you're going to get opinion. If you've watched this before, you know that. And you're going to get an education. And if you keep watching, you always will. Yeah. So I want to wrap on a more uplifting, positive moment from our recent webinar with uh, Varys and Greg. You and I both were on this session. 
And uh, Dino, you're going to have to check out the On Demand. And On Demand yeah. is, is readily available. We've dropped a link uh, there in chat. Y'all check it out. But at, at near the end of that conversation, Greg, we had Eric Wilk, who is CEO at Worth Industry for the MRO Safety and Metalworking Division, right? Right. Of course, Paul Noble and Jim Braun uh, was with us as well from Barrison. But Eric very eloquently put something out there that I was inspired by. And what he was talking about is your team is under all this pressure and stress as they're trying to navigate this environment, just like there's a ton of pressure and stress on, on leadership, right? And he challenged leaders to, hey, show and communicate to them what that pathway to excellence looks like. Because with that clarity and knowing that there's a better day right around the corner, it's going to help them get through the tougher hours and the tougher days. And that's really, I took that as a responsibility that we have to act on, right? So, hey, to Greg's point, to what we've been talking about this whole time, hey, take the information, the expertise, the education presented here, but then you got to do something with it, right? You got to do something with it. Deeds, not words. Communicate and show your team what that pathway to excellence looks like. It'll make their days better. And with all of that said, Greg and Dino, Catherine and Amanda, and all the folks who are in the chat, hey, thanks for being here. Thanks for all that you do. But Scott Luton challenging you to do good, to give forward, and to be the change. And we'll see you next time right back here at Supply Chain Now. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for being a part of our Supply Chain Now community. Check out all of our programming at supplychainnow.com and make sure you subscribe to Supply Chain Now anywhere you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time on Supply Chain Now. Supply Chain Now.